Cool. Ladies and gentlemen, the guests of today's podcast, Rick O'Block. I'm super excited that you're here. Thank you. Um, I'm excited for a few reasons. One is I really like you as a person, <laughs> and I'm excited to uh, you know to pick your brain. Um, for those of us that are watching this on YouTube, apologies apologies in advance. Rick and I agreed when we were you know <laughs> coordinating this that uh, we both have a face for radio. <laughs> so those of you that are listening, we're glad that you're listening. Those of you that are watching, our condolences. Yes. Sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but very sincerely, um, Rick, you're one of the. You're. I'm, I just can't wait to pick your brain because. I feel like, so the whole point of this, this podcast for me is, is really, it's a selfish endeavor. It's for me to learn from people that inspire me. Mm-hmm. And you come from a really great, what I'll call diverse yes. background of experiences that I'm excited to see how they've all sort of converged to where they are today, to where we are today, because on paper, they're so different. Yes. Um, and so to, to paint a little bit of a background, and, and I'm going to butcher the heck out of this, but to hopefully kind of tee it up and do an introduction for you. Sure. You have a ton of experience in what I'll call the professional corporate world. Mm-hmm. Um, you come from the, the medical industry um, and lots of, of experience there, building practices, starting practices, I mean, the business side of yes. the medical world is, is really where your specialty was. Yes. Um, some people that are listening will probably recognize your voice because you're the voice of the Skyhawks. Yes. And uh, you add the flavor to all of our broadcasts, but you also had a show um, and, you know, this great experience in, in the broadcast right. world. And now today you are an entrepreneur and a level deeper than that. I think what I would consider, how I would classify you as a community builder, mm. um, a connector and, you know, somebody who adds value and, you know, resources and things like that. Um, and before we dive in, I do want to share one quick story for, for anybody listening. So Rick and I worked on, on a project that we will get to. And by nature of that project, a lot of the work was through Zoom meetings. Yes. So Rick and I would, would meet on uh, on Zoom fairly frequently every other week for, for a while or was something. Was it Zoom or Google Meets? One or the other. Google yeah. Meets. But I'm going to blame the internet connection, yes. not, the, uh, not the meeting source. But for everybody listening, it was the best because Rick would regularly have uh, internet disruptions. Yes. But it the nature of it was that you would know it was coming before it came and we would get some great, uh, what I'll call Rick flavor <laughs> expletives <laughs> censored. <laughs> and then we would know it was coming. The, uh, you know, the, yeah, the, the dread of the, of the crash, but it was fun to, you know, see, see the, well, the, if I could expand on that. Yes. Uh, so we would have these meetings and, and it was very frustrating for me that you guys would have this meeting and all of a sudden my computer would just freeze. I thought it was frozen. And so I didn't know that the audio would still go on. And there would be like two or three times during the meeting when the, my side would freeze and you guys would continue. And I would throw out one of my common terms (laughs) and not knowing that you guys could hear what I was saying on the other side. So, uh, it, it is a little bit of my flavor. Oh, it's fun. That's all I can say. It's great. <laughs> so, but you know, what's cool, I think is, you know, and that's where I'm, I'm super excited to, to pick your brain and, and hear some more of your story. Um, you know, cause like I had mentioned earlier, there's so many diverse 
you've got such a diverse experience background um, that I would imagine has taught you a lot of different things along the way. Do you mm-hmm. mind, and, and I'm going to dive in deep, but for, for the audience and, and for my sake, do you mind giving me the, you know, the, the cliff notes version sure. of the Rick journey? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's really important to know that I, I have been able to do so many things and I have drawn on experiences from all of those things to help drive decision-making to what I do now. And a lot of it is commonsensical things, but there are some that are intuitive, right? <clears throat> and you always hear about, well, let's make decisions to base, based on data. And, you know, that's great. And certainly that s- should support a decision, but it's not always necessarily the only way to do something. So when I was younger, I started selling and managing real estate. And I was 19, 20 years old. Interest rates were 17%. I mean, people complain about 6 and 7% now. Interest rates were 17%. And I, I got an opportunity, when I got married, my wife got an opportunity to move down here. I had already gone to school for two years here. So we came back to Durango. She's a dietitian, worked at the hospital. And so I decided, well, I should finish my degree. So I got my degree in accounting and I worked in public accounting for a year and really wasn't my jam, you know. Um, I like I like the finance part of things and understanding that and the tax code kind of things at the time. But I really didn't like shifting through people's shoeboxes of receipts and going, oh, yeah, you went to Chili's for this. And I, I didn't like that. So I, one of our clients was a medical practice and they were looking for somebody to help them out on the finance side of things. So the hot, the practice administrator was leaving and I took over that position. I had no experience in medical stuff, but I had a interest and some experience in the finance side and that's really what they needed. It was a struggling practice and I, I took over that practice, and because of the group and the team that we had, we ended up taking that practice that was basically bankrupt, and in three or four years, it was very profitable, and we had a fairly good sum of money in the bank, <coughs> excuse me, and along with that, we had office remodels, we had established pension plans that they didn't have before. Uh, new equipment to run better testing. So all of those things. And then the hospital, back at that time, the the um, environment was that hospitals were purchasing practices. And so one of our, our practice was up for purchase, basically. And so they purchased our practice. We negotiated the price. And I was responsible at that point of bringing it all together. So in addition to family practice that I ran, we also purchased a pediatric practice, internal medicine practice, uh, mental health practice. And so my job at that point now went from practice administrator to guess what, you know, joint ventures and mergers. Yeah. So that's gave me that experience there. And I'm like, okay, I need to operationalize this and do some analysis, not only on staffing ratios, but, you know, profitability, how many patients do we need to see? What's what's going to be our sunk cost? What's going to be our fixed cost versus variable cost? All of those things. Um, and I did that for 
a while. And uh, then all of a sudden they were like, well, <clears throat> we're real because you fix things. Now I'm the fixer, right? That's what my role was. Victim of your own success. Yes. <laughs> and so they were like, well, we really need you to go over to our business office and see what you can do over there. And so, you know, that was a thing where I was working with accounts receivable and, and patient information, you know, patient statements. Um, and anybody that's ever had a hospital bill knows inc how incredibly insane they are. And so my, one of my responsibilities was to have a team of people that would fix what was going on. And it's really all about the team that's has been assembled. Everything that I've done has really been about the team that I've assembled around me. And for me, it was always, what were my weaknesses? And I always tried to identify my weaknesses and then hire people to fill those weaknesses. Yeah. And together, you know, we, we made a good team because each of us had a pocket that we, that we were interested in and were good at. You know, I'm good at motivating people. I'm sort of good at seeing what's out ahead of me and I draw back on the fact that I didn't like going through a shoebox with receipts. That's not what I do. But I'm good at saying, okay, how can we change this and make it better based on the people that I have on my team? And that, that was really important to what I've done. And I've just built on that. So from that point, they were like, hey, um, <clears throat> you know, we sort of need somebody to do corporate responsibility for us and compliance. And you know, because I had an accounting background and that kind of stuff. They're like, would you do it? I'm like, sure. It's interim. That's the scary word <laughs> for anybody in business, right? Interim, yeah. right? Because it's never interim. It's always, okay, well, now it's yours. Um, so I did that for 15 years, corporate responsibility. So I, I dealt with the federal government on any kind of patient complaints. And then they were like, you know, we really need you to oversee our revenue cycle. So that's all of the money that came into the hospital. And all of that, that, that's a huge system. I mean, that was, you know, $250 million a year yeah. that came in. And so then they were like, well, you know, um, could you go over and Pagosa's really struggling with a facility. And so could you go over there? So I'm like, okay. So what we did was we ended up building a hospital. So I ran a, a, a um, campaign to get it on the ballot and to get it approved by the voters so that there would be a tax levy over there so we could build a hospital. So I went through all of that. And, um, you know, it's just, I've just drawn from all these experiences that I've had. We, we again went through a process where we purchased additional practices. And so I was responsible for the contracting and I was responsible for the, the merger and the operationalization of the practices and how to do it and what's, what computer systems to use and things like that. So uh, that's probably went on a little bit longer than what you had thought, but no, that, it's that's sort of a background. So you said something that really stood out to me mm -hmm. that I, I want you to unpack a little bit. And it, it had to do with the decision-making process. Um, I forget the exact word you used, but you basically said something to the extent of data-backed decision-making and intuition. intuition. Mm -hmm. So... <clears throat> I, I'm fascinated with this story for so many. I got like a hundred questions from that, but um, I want to hear from you. I want you to help me understand that a little bit more, this intuition side of things and how that comes into play 
when it comes to decision making and especially big decision making, it sounded to me like you trusting your intuition from early on was potentially a factor in that. Or did you feel like, I, I guess what I'm wanting to understand from you a little bit more is where did the trust of your own intuition come from? Did that come from all of this failures, all of this experience? Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell me more about the being able to make decisions based on intuition and where the intuition ultimately comes from. Well, I think anybody that's in a decision-making role at times they have decisions that they go, Oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. And why, why did it fail? Or why did you make the wrong decision? It might not have failed, but it might not work as well as you thought. And so why was that? And so you, you reflect on that. I mean, anybody who's going to be good in their role, they need to reflect on every decision that they make. Did I make the right decision? I did, but it didn't go as well. Why not? And so based on that experience of failures and success, you sort of go, oh, you know, it looks like a good idea, but I just don't feel right about it. Is it beyond something that I'm capable of doing? Based on my prior history, I can say, oh, yeah, I probably wouldn't do it the same way. And it's sort of database, but it's also, you know, everybody has a feeling, right? Yeah. Regardless of what it is, you have a feeling. And whether it's a relationship or whether it's business or whether it's, gee, I don't know if I should go down this dark road with this fog out here and, you know, who knows, a crazy guy. You just get a feeling and sometimes you act on those feelings and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're not. I mean, how many business stories have you heard of somebody that mortgages their house because they wanted to be a race car driver or they wanted to open up Apple. I mean, it just happens. It's it, And they didn't say, you know, the data shows me that I would be a good race car driver. No, they felt it inside and it was something that they went with. And it might have worked, it might not. But, you know, you build on those success and failures and that's sort of what helps with the intuition that you have. I love... Well, it's so nice to hear somebody from your seat talk about the value of intuition and successes and failures and things like that. Because, you know, I'm pretty early on in my entrepreneurial journey, you know, a decade and a half of professional experience, but pretty, pretty green in, in the business mm -hmm. ownership world. And I start to feel what I'll call imposter syndrome fairly regularly now. And the other day it was in, it's just, it's so interesting that you brought that up today. Cause last week we were driving back from Pagosa Springs from a meeting and I was just kind of debriefing with, with my employees. And one of the questions was like, you know, my takeaways from some larger changes that we're working on. And my response to them was, is that I need to trust myself more mm -hmm. and, and like trust those, you know, those gut instincts, because I was, I was reflecting as you mentioned also about if there's ever been a time when it's led me wrong, and I don't think that there is, at least that I can think of. Not necessarily to say that it's always, you know, gone perfectly right. I don't mean to imply that sure. at all. But listening to my intu mm -hmm. intuition, gen generally speaking, has been a good, a good rule of thumb. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. This might be a hard question to answer, so see what your thoughts are. But that idea of data-backed decision making and intuition-backed decision making. Obviously, ideally, they go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. We've got data that supports it. Our, our gut sure. tells us it's a good, a good choice as well. Have you ever had an, an experience in your career when 
the data told one story, but your intuition told another. And if you listen to, to one or the other, I mean, I, I can't think of any, a specific example. I could, if I would have known that uh, question, yeah, of course, I know. <laughs> but I would say, yes, I mean, and it could go in both directions. Like the data doesn't support something, but deep down inside, it feels like the right thing to do. And then there are times when it feels like the right thing to do, but the data just doesn't justify doing it. And that might be like, gosh, we want to hire a certain type of doctor, endocrinologist. The data doesn't support hiring an endocrinologist, but the right thing to do for the community is to hire an endocrinologist. So that might be an example. You know, I know what this, in my intuition and in my background, I know this community needed an endocrinologist and they work with diabetics and stuff like that. There's a huge diabetic problem in the country. The numbers that we had didn't really support paying somebody that level of service and that level of expertise, but it was the right thing to do. And that's the other part of it. Is it the right thing to do? Yeah. So many times people get hung up in, well, the data doesn't show up, but is it the right thing to do? There's a, that, that's a, that's a, I think we've, at times we've sort of lost that component. Yeah. Do the right thing. Um, so I, I would say, yeah, that, that, you know, there's definitely been times when the data supports it, but it doesn't feel right. Yeah. And then, and you know, speculative, obviously, but I think a lot of times when it's the right thing to do, the data comes, Sure. you know, like making the decision in the business sense to hire the endocrinologist or, or whatever it might be, kind of that like build it and they will come idea. Yeah. You know, like even if the data is not there yet, I trust my intuition. I know that it's the right thing to do. And then kind of this like trust that you make those decisions and that you know, good, good business and good ethics can happen simultaneously. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, when we built the hospital, um, the projections were really low. We knew it was going to happen, but the, the projections were so low compared to what actually happened. And so you're right. If you build it, they will come. And, you know, for a while we were just killing it, crushing it. We had a hundred physicians on staff of almost every specialty you could think of. Yeah, and and that was because we had a brand new facility. Durango is a freaking awesome place to live, and we attracted physicians that didn't necessarily come here. They were very high level quality in uh, education, but it wasn't all about that for them. You know, they came here because they enjoyed the lifestyle. They wanted their family to be raised in this environment. They saw what we were doing, the direction we were heading, but our projections in the initially were like super low, uh, and it just worked out. I've I've had a theory forever, and you may have just supported it unknowingly. Durango is a weird business place, mm-hmm. and I think it's because we have a lot of overqualified people that are here because they want to be. Yes you know, any other market. And, and luckily I've got the luxury of, I, I do business all over the country, which has helped me a ton. Cause I get to kind of see other markets and how, how other economies work and, you know, competitiveness and things like that. And to generalize, but generally speaking, when we're working with Durango based businesses, especially in the, 
in the, what I'll call the professional services space, your doctors, your mm-hmm. lawyers, real estate agents, whatever it might be, they're usually here by choice. Sure. And and here with a different intention than, like if I work with a business any anywhere else in the country, it's hyper aggressive, super competitive. They want to grow, you know, kind right. of like hustling. Most of the time in Durango, there's these incredibly talented people that are here because they're trying to find some balance. Yes. And the the lifestyle that we get here, which I just think is it's interesting to hear your perspective that that occurred in the, you know, in the medical world as well with hiring the doctors. Oh, yeah. The pine cone factor. Nah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, that that absolutely was the case. Uh, one of the things I, I did when I was at the hospital is I did physician recruiting. And so we would bring these people in and, you know, we would be interviewing them as much as they would be interviewing us. So I, I can remember there was one physician who was from Florida and he was a anesthesiologist. And so we started talking about compensation. He's like, well, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a go getter and, uh, I make really good money and I make seven figures. And we knew immediately he was not, not for fit. this group yeah. because that group of all the groups I managed that one, those guys were here. They were really good, but they were here because they wanted the, that balance part of their life as well as, you know, the professional side. It was challenging here. It wasn't as challenging as say, you know, downtown Las Vegas, but it was still pretty challenging here. Yeah. And, and they liked, they loved it. You know, we we were very successful with that. Can you tell me more? So you mentioned this team building idea and early on I described you as a community builder. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've never get, I've never been able to observe you or, you know, work with you in a formal team building capacity. It's always just been my observations from a, you know, shaking hands at the basketball games or whatever. But, um, you mentioned even that story with that anesthesiologist, you know, one statement and you instantly knew, ah, probably not a fit for us. I'd love to hear, and you also early on had mentioned this idea of building teams and being aware of your weaknesses mm-hmm. and building these teams kind of kind of around that. I would love to hear some of your philosophy mm-hmm. on team building and uh, how culture plays into that and and like how you look at when you're building teams in the professional space the types of, of things that you were looking at for people that would be considered a good teammate and that, that you would bring them in and, and kind of how your approach to, to team building was. Yeah. I, I think for me, the biggest thing was do people share the same values that I have? And that was a question that I would ask on an interview. I mean, it blew people away. I'd go, so uh, what are your values? Well, I'm a hard worker. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't mean that. What are your values? Tell me for real. What is it? How do you treat people? How do you get along with others? How do you handle a situation where you don't agree with someone? What if you don't agree with your boss? You know, those, how are you personally? That was important to me. And that was always a question. I don't know if you could get away with that now. Probably. It's a pretty benign question, but it was very important. So I always look for people that had the same shared values as I did was I was hardworking. I had high expectations. If people didn't meet those expectations, I let them know. It's not fair to people to be uninformed on their performance 
and what the overall expectation is of the organization. I was very transparent with people. And so I would share information monthly on where we were compared to budget, how many employees we had, what was our expenses, were there ways that we could reduce our expenses. I was extremely transparent, and that's scary for a lot of people. Yeah. Very scary for people. Um, but so holding people to expectations, tell them what the expectations are, and if they don't perform at that level, then you know, they would be told. And the other thing is I always, every day, you know, I had at one point, I had close to 300 employees. I would go at least three to four times a week and I would say hello to every single employee. Not necessarily the doctors, uh, but every single frontline employee and management employee that I had I would say hello to them. And I tried to know something about them personally. Like if they were going through something, hey, here your kid had a bike accident. Are they okay? You know, stuff like that. And I always treated somebody with respect, regardless, even if I didn't like them. Because there are people that, you know, you got 300 employees, you don't like them all. Of course. You know? It's a numbers game. <laughs> Come on. Uh, but I always respected everybody. And I, I, I'll tell a story, real quick story. There was an employee that was sort of really smart, really smart. And they drove me crazy. But I always treated them with respect. And they actually tried to undermine me a few times. <clears throat> but I always treated them with respect. And this person went, and they did some amazing stuff. And I saw them downtown, and they came up to me, and they go, I need to apologize to you. I go, for what? And they go, well, I know because now they're in a position of power, right? They go, ah, looking back, I was not that good of an employee to you. I have a new And I apologize for that. And that meant more to me than all the success that I've had. Wow. Yeah. And I've had, a, I had an employee that they came to me and they were like, you know, my, my dream has always been to be a pilot. I'm like, okay, how can we make you, how can we help you do that? Well, I really need to work three quarters time. Like, great, done. That person flies jets for a major airline now. Those are the kind of things that I really, really enjoyed. Letting people achieve their personal goals was extremely important to me. And it might not be, you know, they might not fly jets. You know, their goal might be, you know, I want to bring in this much money for the hospital. Great. How can we help you do that? So that was really the most important thing for me. So did you feel, I, I was going to ask you why, you know, you would take the effort to, to say hi to everybody, but I think that I can get the essence of that. It's because you genuinely cared. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, do you feel like giving people the ability to pursue those personal dreams, I'll call it, mm -hmm. you know, like that, that contributed to their ability to be a good team member, almost like your needs are taken care of. So now you can help others with their needs type of thing. Yeah, or absolutely. Like was, and <clears throat> so the philosophy behind like supporting these other aspirations or goals or dreams, the, the driving factor behind that. And if that was a intuition decision, cause data would say, 
you know, that you were, you want somebody all in that's the workaholic. And, right. but I, my, my assumption would be that's maybe not the right formula for the most high performing team. I think the formula for the high performing team is, are they happy doing what they do? And if you don't take a personal interest in them, they're not going to trust you. You know, people trusted me that if I said, we're going to do this on this date or we're going to hit this goal. If people didn't trust me, they're not going to do it, you know, and, and I'm not talking, I'm talking real loyal trust, true trust, true trust, not a bunch of lip service, but really true trust. And I'm not saying everybody liked me. I've had that conversation. You know, I had a, a doctor who didn't really like me and I knew it. And I, I sat down with him one day and I'm like, look, I know you don't like me, but you need to respect me. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. You just keep doing what you're doing, but you respect me. And if you can't do that, we're not going to, we're not going to, this relationship is not going to make it. Yeah. Did you see the Nick Saban interview? I think it's a recent interview. I just got exposure to the clip mm-hmm. recently at least. Mm-mm. And he basically says, high-performing people don't like mediocre people, and mediocre people don't like high-performing people. And if you have an organization that has both, you will never function highly because there's a tug-of-war going on. I I would disagree with that. Interesting. I want to hear. Yeah, I would disagree with that because, you know, 20% of the employees do 80% of the work. But what makes up the character of that 20%? Are they loyal? Do they show up on time? Do they, are they always here? Do they not make mistakes? They might not have the productivity of somebody at that 80% level, but they're still a good team member, Mm. right? Like look at an offensive line. Let's take the center. The center runs the offensive line. He tells which way to block, what kind of blocking scheme they're going to do. He's not the quarterback. He's not the guy who literally throws touchdown passes. He's there to help that person achieve the final outcome. So I don't necessarily agree with that equation. That doesn't mean that you let people slack. I said that earlier. You let them know what the expectation is. The expectation is you snap the ball to the quarterback, you block, and you make a hole for the running back, or you make sure he doesn't get sacked. That's your job. I love that, actually. And and that's going to have to – I'm going to have to reframe – some of that because I I have a tendency sometimes of setting unrealistic expectations and thinking everybody needs to be these ultra high performers. Mm. And I'm going to take that away from this conversation that sometimes those roles are necessary. So the high performers can be high performers. Absolutely. Dang. And that wraps up to it. No, (laughs) we're done. But that, that, cause that's almost a mic drop moment. That's a, a powerful thing to think about. It's like you need, the supporting roles so that the 80 20 rule can can do what they're needing to do sure yeah i mean think of a an administrative assistant to a ceo you know i mean they're high performers but they're not performing at the ceo it level. just looks different it looks different yeah yeah and I, and i love that that as long as expectations are set mm-hmm. and they're doing what they need to be doing mm-hmm. still just as important or just as critical to the success of the whole yeah of the whole thing people like, like people like to be in this is going to sound bad i don't mean to come out this way but people like to know what the parameters are sure right so 
where a lot of people go wrong, where a lot of businesses go wrong, is that they they don't establish what those parameters are. So people are just flailing out there. And, and they're like, well, nobody ever told me to do that. Nobody ever told me to answer the phone after the third ring or whatever it might be. Yeah. So that's you mean what employees aren't mind readers. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> Dang. I know, right? It'd be so easy. Yeah. No, they're not. I have to communicate? Yeah. Oh, okay. It starts up here, right? <laughs> it comes down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, oh, I love that. I'm, I'm going to take that away from this, the expectations and the, the reframing that, you know, it's funny because that's why I love getting new perspectives. Cause I saw that Nick Saban clip and I'm like, yeah, you know, Nick Saban, <laughs> eight time national champion. And then yeah. it's like, well, here in the real world, right. You need everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and, and you have plenty of a track record of, you know, building those, those high performing teams. So I, your, your opinion in fact, matters probably carries more weight to me than some guy I've never met online. Oh, well, you know, I don't have the national recognition that Nick Saban has, but, you know, I have been fortunate. And the reason I've been fortunate is because of the people that have allowed me to be fortunate, right? I mean, I was the one who sort of got the notoriety for some of the things I've done, but it's really the people that worked with me that got me that notoriety. Yeah. And yeah. I need to make sure that I acknowledge them. I, I had a situation where I had to lay off a number of people, like close to 20 people at one time because of corporate changes. And I was like, okay, look, I went, I went to the CEO and the CFO and I'm like, look, uh, here's how I, they're like, how do you want to do it? And I go, like, I want to give them three months notice. And the CFO looked at me and he goes, well, that's not how we do things at corporate. And I go, well, this isn't corporate. This is the way we do things here. It's the right, the thing, right thing to do. And I actually, the, the day that they, you know, the, their last day, I actually had somebody come up and thank me for the way that they were let go. Because you gave them time? I gave them time and I gave them respect. I was like, okay, you know, it was a big organization. So I had that opportunity. I'm like, look, um, I'm going to do everything in my power to get you another job here if that's what you want. And they trusted me. Mm. And so a number of people, I got them jobs in other departments. Some, that wasn't what they wanted. Didn't want that. Yeah. yeah. And I let them exit gracefully. Here comes back trust. Trust. Matters just a little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, relationships is the whole thing. Relationships are built on trust, right? Yeah. Whether it's a personal relationship, a work relationship, professional relationship, that it's critical. How do you build trust? follow through on things. So if you tell somebody you're going to do something, by golly, you better do it and let them know. Sometimes you can't divulge things to, to employees. They just have to know that you're doing what you said you would do. Like I'll give you an example. Say that there's a, a problem employee. Well, you can't talk what you're going to do to that problem employee to try and fix their behavior to the employee that voiced the complaint. Right. They just have to trust that you're going to take care of it. And so if their behavior doesn't change after you lay out the expectations, you know, there are consequences for that. And if they, if the employee who made the complaint sees the consequences, then that builds trust. Yeah. So trust almost, it's like you have to trust what I do, not what I say. 
It has to be both because if you tell somebody, I'll take care of this, then you do. Do what you say. Do yeah. what you say. Then they, then they, you know, then they're like, he said he was going to do that. It happened. Trust, respect, recurring themes already, which I'm loving. Um, uh, one thing I'm curious about. So it seems like in your, your, your career, your professional trajectory, you've had, I mentioned it a few times, actually, kind of this diverse background. Like mm-hmm. you, you've gotten to experience so many different things mm-hmm. in the, in the professional world. What's that a credit to? Do you feel like, I guess what I'm trying to figure out from you is if it was intentional or if some of it sort of just happened, like, did you see these new opportunities and say yes to them? Or, you know, did you end up kind of, did it, did it sort of just, just happen? Cause it really is diverse. It's, it's wild to, to think about. And then I'm, I'm, I want to talk to you about radio, but, <laughs> uh, which by the way, another diverse thing, but yeah, yeah. you know, the, you know how sometimes you have the benefit of looking back in hindsight and you're like, yeah. holy cow, that was amazing, but it sure didn't line up like that if you would have looked at it, you know, yeah. the other way. How, how did we I, end up with all this? I think initially it was a conscious decision. Like when I decided, you know, the account, the accounting thing was not working for me. And, and you uh, knew that quickly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I knew that pretty quickly. And they knew it quickly. You know, was, I don't want to just put it all on me. It, you know, it just wasn't a good fit. And so there was this medical practice. And I'm like, you know, in the long run, public accounting is going to do, in my mind, X for me. But if I go off in this other avenue, even though initially it was sort of a pay cut, I thought to myself, I can remember this conversation in my head. And there's a lot of voices up there. But this one I can remember. And and I said, you know, in the long run, I think I'm going to be better off if I go in this direction. And so that one was a very conscious decision. The other things were just based on performance. Um, you know, I, so somebody believed in you, somebody believed that you could do these new things. Well, yeah, based on past performance, right? There's no better predictor of future performance than past performance. Right. So if you're successful at running a medical practice, which, Again, we we were, and they were like, hmm, boy, there's some talent there, and gee, it took this practice from literally bankruptcy. I mean, the day I took over, we were $10,000 in the red, and payroll was two days later. Wow. Yeah, and we went from that to a pretty good buyout per shareholder. So, you know, they looked at that, and they're like, hmm, you know, wow. There's some um, evidence. Yeah, there's, there's some a evidence. data back decision. Yeah, and then they go, okay, well, let's try you in this arena. And how do you do in this arena? And gee, you know, we achieved some pretty good success there. And then, okay, well, how about if you do this? And so, the, you know, it's sort of a building block. And and they, in at that point, they started to trust me. So when I went to them, and I'm like, hey, look, this isn't going to work. Or I think we could tweak it this way or this way. They're like okay, do what you got to do based on the trust, based on past performance. And I will tell you, I, looking back, there are things that I think I didn't have good balance in my life at times. I overworked myself, like, especially during these mergers, you know, I'd be up at 
you know, I'd be responsible for operational merger of these practices into the hospital operations with tons of employees that are trusting me to get them benefits. And that I'd be up at two, three in the morning. Yeah. Sending out spreadsheets for crying out loud. Ugh. So, you know, it was, it was through a lot of hard work and, and performance and the performance. I, again, I achieved a high level of outcome because of the people that surrounded me on the teams that I was with. Was it worth it? Well, um, <laughs> I, I would say this, there's the financial side of things. There's the personal side of things. Um, overall, I would say it was worth it in, you know, we all make sacrifices. And so there were certain things that I sacrificed. Like I hardly ever went on vacation. Like my wife was in the same boat. She was a very high achiever at the hospital. Um, but they came to us one day and they were like, okay, we're reducing your, your, uh, PTO personal time off. And you only get 240 hours now every year. And whatever you, you got to use what you have until you get to 240. And we had to use, we had 540 hours of PTO. So we had to, that was our really, that was a huge vacation because we had to. (laughs) The reduction in vacation made you take more vacation. (laughs) Yeah. So I I would say it's a little bit both. Some of it was conscious and some of it was, you know, just because of past performance. Yeah. Yeah. And then we jumped into radio. Well, that was interesting. Um, So I, I need to say I was a football official for a I long forgot time. that in the introduction, and I knew oh, I was going to okay. forget that. That's Hold okay. on real quick, because it no, deserves No, 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 we'll get shot. to it. We'll okay, get to it. Okay. Right. So anyway, I was a football official uh, for a long time, and part of what I did when, when I was uh, um, in practice management was I, I reached out and made relationships with community members through civic clubs. So I was in Rotary, and I was president of Rotary and all that kind of stuff. But I made a lot of friendships. And I recognized that there was an opportunity in Durango to highlight some of the uh, elite athletes that we have in our community. Because there are a number, as you know, you're a, you're a runner, you're an ultra runner guy. A lot of elite athletes here. So I had met this person through Rotary who was the general manager at KIQX, KRSJ. And I said, hey, his name is Ward Holmes, good friend, great guy. I'm like, hey, what would you think about a radio show that highlighted elite athletes? And he's like, mm, no. We gave it a try. <laughs> didn't work. I'm like, come on, man. Let's just give it a try. And so we did. And he let me. So I had to go in and talk on the radio. And that's when you got a voice. You got a face for radio came up. Yeah. And uh you were you were podcasting before podcasting was cool. I was podcasting. I didn't even know it. And so I would I would have these elite athletes and I got to meet a ton of elite athletes. I got to interview Bill Walton, which was way cool. But um I would have these elite athletes come in and, and I was always I wasn't into the performance side of it, right? I mean, sure that's part of it, but I was more into the psychological part and who they are as people. Like you're a pro athlete. What's it like really on the road when you travel or 
the psychological side of anybody that's ever competed like yourself, there's a psychological side that people really don't touch on yeah. too much, right? Like everybody has a lull. And so I interviewed a, a, a person in town who's a sports psychologist. It's like, okay, what do you do when you hit a low or how do you stay motivated or, you know, things like that. So I was always trying to dig a little bit deeper. Even when I interviewed Bill Walton, I was like, so what do you think about weed? <laughs> That's not a normal question right. that you would ask somebody. He's like, I think it's ridiculous we're even talking about it. Everybody uses it in the NBA. So let's just get over that and make it legal. So, you know, but how many people would ask Bill Walton that question? So I always tried to go that direction. And so I did that for five years. And one day I'm at the hospital and I get a telephone call. And um, it was the athletic director at Fort Lewis College, Gary Hunter. And he goes, hey, I hear you have a radio show. I'm like, yeah. And I hear you're a football official. And I go, yeah. And he goes, we need somebody to do radio for a football team up here. Would you be interested? I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, I always take an opportunity, right? So I, he goes, well, we need you to try out, you know, go down and talk and see if you really have a radio voice, which I don't know if I do or not. Nobody's ever really. Well, you do now. I do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, Fake you know, it till we make it, but, you know. <laughs> so I, I went and I sat down and I – And they're like, are you interested in doing it? And I'm like, yeah, I would love to do it. And so that was a a situation where I drew from my experience of being a football official. And I was able to provide a different perspective. You know, now on TV, they have Gene Steratore for crying out loud and Terry McCauley. You know, I love Terry McCauley. But I was doing it 10 years before those guys. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah. So I, I was able to bring a different perspective to the program. And and I only did football for the first four, four, four years, I think. And then they were like, well, you know, we're thinking about making a change on the basketball side. Would you be interested in doing that? And I played basketball as a kid and I officiated for two years. And I'm like, yeah. So I jumped on that, you know, because the opportunity came up. And so I've been doing – Football for 14 years for Fort Lewis. Um, never had a winning season. And I've been doing basketball for 10 years. And it's super fun. I love it. And yeah. I love when people come up and say to where we sit. I love when people come up at halftime or, or during the game, you know, in between games and introduce themselves. I've met so many cool parents and grandparents. It's been awesome. It's an awesome experience. There's something about, and and you and you are great at it. By the oh, way, thanks. it's fun. Oh, I'm sure, and I mean that sincerely. And if Bob Bonner's listening, you know the two of you together is, anyway, it's just so fun to, <laughs> to hear the you guys are the best. But there, it's interesting, the sports world and how that is such a microcosm for every other facet of life. Mm-hmm. And you know, you talk about people coming and saying hi to you, and you know how exciting yeah. that is. And I envy you know, the, the years that you had sitting in and talking to the, these high performing athletes, I get to do it now, not always with athletes, but I, I, you know, it's a similar, sure. Similar, uh, yeah. you know, uh, selfish endeavor, you know, on, on my end too. I'm, I hope obviously that I'm adding value for, for people that are listening, but th- I love that the, the, so many things to take away from what you just said. One is jumping on opportunities, yes. which I had a feeling was a case with you, yes. you know, in, in, in considering the the resume yeah um 
but also this idea of an ongoing willingness to learn. Yes. And, you know, because here we are, you're, I don't know how old you were, but you're well into your career and, and you're established. You're by every measurement successful, busy, busy, uh, clearly, you know, I mean, a lot going on. Super busy. So many other people in the world would say, I'm busy. Yeah. I don't have time to start a radio show. Yeah. Or to broadcast for the, you know, for the Skyhawks football, which by the way, if, if you were in 09, you probably saw the world's best ever backup cornerback for, for the Skyhawks. Really? You played on the silent? Yeah. One year, but it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I remember, you know, <laughs> I, yeah, oh, yeah. You remember that guy? Yeah, that guy? yeah. I knew you'd remember me. Um, <laughs> Mr. Real Relevant. Yeah. Yeah. That guy. The, uh, but, but it's, I think there's, there's something that's insightful about you as a person that I would venture has contributed to your success, jumping in opportunities, willing, willingness to continue to try new things and to learn. And then like, you know, even having those conversations with the, with the athletes and asking those other questions, I can, I know that that's insightful of, of these larger these larger indicators of of who you who you really are. Do you feel like that stuff still happens today for you? Like you're you're still always learning. You're still jumping at new opportunities. Because my point in all that is is that you didn't have to. You no. know, by any means, you, you could have where you were at said, "I'm too busy for this. I've got a lot on my plate," and not a soul in the world would have been like, "No, you're not." You know, everyone's like, right. "Well, yeah, I get it. You're you're busy." Yeah. Why the desire to keep trying new things? And does that still happen today? You know, I think that just comes with part of the overachiever part, right? It's like, I don't like to fail. I take it personally. It's not like, I'm not like Michael Jordan, that kind of guy. It's just, I feel bad if I don't do something well. And I've done some things that have not, I've not done well. You know, like when I was officiating, there's some games I'm like, man, that was a rough game for me. You we know? need you in the NFL. How about it? I, you know, I've got a whole, I've got a whole story about that. I mean, seriously, that that they've they've created this problem. I could go on here. I'll try to keep my voice down. I could go on for that for at least a half an hour. What the problems are because they've created that problem. They have tried to push people through. There's a lot of really good officials out there, but because you don't look the part or you don't have the right size, they discount you. Mm. So that's a valuable lesson, right? It's like just because somebody doesn't look the part doesn't mean that they're not a really good official. Yeah. So they have these certain standards. Like I was told, you know, I was too short because I tried to move up and they were like, well, first of all, you live in Durango. So that's a problem. And second, you know, you're sort of short. We're really looking that for matters. people. Oh, heck yeah. You look at the NFL now. Yeah, no, now that you say that. And you look at the younger officials, it's like a Ken doll. Yeah. 6'2", 6'1". Athletic. Athletic. And if you don't fit that, you're not in. I guarantee it 100% because I've experienced it. And then it's a lot of cronyism, right? So I went down. I was doing some spring ball at UNM in New Mexico. And... There was a guy down there, super nice guy, I guess. I don't know. But he was a third-year official. I will tell you, you don't know anything after your third year. But because he knew somebody that was moving up to the NFL who was a big deal in the Mountain West Conference, he got moved into college. Well, what's that going to do? 
you don't have the experience, the expertise, or the background, you're going to fail. Yeah. You know, this is not on-the-job training. Right. This is, you go in there and you better know your stuff because I I don't know if you've been around Division One sports at all. It's a whole different world. Yeah. It's money. Right? Like, when I was at UNM, I never saw the head coach. He's over there shaking sponsors' hands, kissing babies. It's all about the money. Right. And that program is horrible. So you can imagine what it's like when you go to a Nick Saban in Alabama. The money that's around that, Texas, Oklahoma, I mean, it could go on. So, yeah. So anyway, they've promoted these people. I have a friend who is a five-time Super Bowl champion. I mean, he's an official. Oh, right. He's been in the Super Bowl five times. How cool. Yeah. Really amazing guy. Is he in the Hall of Fame? I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, we're speaking to a Hall of Famer. I can't believe I forgot it in the introduction. Uh, that's okay. Colorado Football, Football Officiating Hall of Fame. Yes. So cool. Thank you. But again, it's this, it's it's a, another one of these trends of where I feel like you've had this yes mentality always. Yeah. Like the, you know, you all of these things you've done, you've had to say yes to clearly, but it's it's so fascinating to me to see the width of it, the the variety and, and all of these different things, which yeah. I feel like has contributed to a, a rich life. You know, all of these learning experiences and these these new perspectives and these lessons. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've been very fortunate is because like when I was in high school, I was like, there was a musical and I, was, I sang in high school and I'm like, I'm going to try out for the musical. So I got the lead, right? Add musicals to the list. Add musicals. And uh, you know, I had a friend who was a really good skier, Jimmy Currents. I love that guy. And he's like, you know, Rick, uh, you should try out for ski school. You're you okay skier. So, you so I tried out for ski school, and I taught skiing for a long time, you know. And I always – I think it helps you to try different things, experience different things, yeah. and it builds your character and what you can and can't do. And, you know, even even my wife, Jenny, she's like, man, you're always willing to try something new. And that's sort of how we got with the deal with Dave Hagen. Yeah. Something new. I was just going to say. And now, now? Tell, tell me about what you're doing currently. Yeah. So which one? Pedal Durango. <laughs> oh, Pedal Durango. Uh, yeah. So Pedal Durango, it, it really sort of started because after I retired, and I was fortunate I retired at 57, um, I was out and I had met this person, Steve Schwartz, who at that time was the CFO of the college, and we're out on a bike ride. And he goes, you know what? You should help us with the fall blaze since you don't have anything to do now. And I'm like, okay, I'd never put on an event before. Let's give it a whirl. And so I got to work with Dave Hagen, who at the time was the director of cycling of the most successful cycling program in the country, hands down. By far. By far. And, um, we did the fall blaze and the fall blaze was a, an event. It was a tour. It wasn't a race that raised money specifically around raising, uh, money for scholarships for student athletes, specifically cycling student athletes. So I did that for a couple of years and we had some success in doing that. And, um, then Dave, then, then I got a call one day before COVID and they were like, a number of people are meeting, and we'd like for you to attend Durango 
seems like it's lost some of its luster in the cycling world and we want to get that back and what can we do? And, um, you know, it was people like Patty Zink, Purgatory, Todd Wells, Gage Sippy. I mean, these are visit Durango. These are like people way out of my pay grade. I mean, way above me in accomplishments. And I'm like, okay. So I show up and we start talking about trying to solidify Durango on the map. And what does that look like? Because so many other areas, Bentonville, who say they're the mountain bike capital of the world, they're not. We are. Um, Moab, you know, the list goes on and on. And so one of the things that we had talked about was trying to develop a one site location for all things cycling in Durango. Well, then COVID hit and it just sort of went south, you know. And then uh, Dave retired and we did the fall blaze right before he retired. And he retired and we were like, you know, remember that one site for all things cycling? We should check into that. And I'm like, okay. And so we met with a number of businesses in town. We were like, hey, would you support this if we did this? And they were like, this is a great idea. And it just sort of went from there. And after we talked to businesses, then, you know, we met with a few people who developed websites. Those people. Those people. But, you know, again, looking at people that fit us, you know, what we thought fit us as, as people. We wanted to work with those people that we thought fit us as people. And, uh, you know, we interviewed a number of people. And, so, you know, some people were like, yeah, they look like rock stars, but it really just wasn't a good fit, you know. And, like, I, anyway, I'll get into this in a second. So, anyway, we, we through all those processes, we selected you guys. And, man, it, it's just been such a great experience. And I know that you have done things for us without charging us. <laughs> and, you know, on the other hand, there's stuff that if you came to me and said, Hey, would you do this? I absolutely would do that. And that's sort of that relationship thing that, that really makes things happen. Yeah. You know, there's a thing about talking about it and then there's a thing about making it happen. And so, you know, Dave and I, we mapped it out and we handed it to you and then you, helped guide us and then Corey came along who actually does the work and you know we built this website for pedal durango that literally is almost everything about cycling we don't do advert we don't do ads like want ads but we do everything we have trails we have we have um hotels restaurants bike shops excuse me uh local products yeah um what to do after you cycle. So say you have a hard day and you want to go do something. What do I do? Okay, well, blah, blah, blah. You can click on the website. And I talked to a number of people who are in that world and they were like, well, I can just Google all that. I'm like, yeah, but you got to Google several different things. This is all right there. And a lot of it's not even, like especially the, what excited me the most about your project was obviously the cohesiveness of it, like a whole all it's all encompassing mm-hmm. but the 
the routes and the guides and the rides side of it, yeah. it's so hard to find accurate, good information right. about stuff like that. Yeah. And that was one of the coolest things early on when you guys had already done so much of that homework and had, you know, narratives written up and maps drawn out and all yeah. this stuff to then make it searchable so people can actually find that. Yeah. And then you, and then you look at it and you go, okay, well, <clears throat> drawing from my past experience, it's like, this is going to be sustainable to a point. Then what do we do? Because for various reasons. So anyway, that's when, you know, you and I spoke and we were like, gosh, what if we had pedal steamboat and pedal winter park? And you were like, I don't want to tell you what to do, but if I were you, I'd snatch those things up. So <laughs> yeah. what do I do that day? I'm like, okay, pedal steamboat pedal. So we ended up with 14 other pedals throughout the state of Colorado. And then we had pedal dash Colorado. So the, the goal now is to have one site pedal dash Colorado, where people can go there, click on a region and then it it would bring up let's just say Southwest, and Pedal Durango would come up. Yeah, all of that would be available to them. And then you know it's like okay, well we have to keep refreshing content because that's how the world is now. And so what are we going to do? So we've added additional rides, and we've added a newsletter, and we've you know done some social media stuff. And I was going to say, and the user generated content with the Instagram and the hashtags and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's staying up. It's staying fresh. If people use it, yeah, it, they, they got to use it, which it's, it's start of it. Yeah. And, and that's a, I think it's worth you sharing too. Cause I, well, it's fun. Cause you know, it's all making so much sense now. The, uh, this inability to slow down and, and this, you know, looking for new opportunities and growth mentality that yeah. you have, which I admire. It's fun to see already these plans for the future and, you know, the scalability and the growth of it. What I think is equally as powerful is what a strong proof of concept you've built already. Do you mind sharing? We when we were off 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 air, um, you were telling me about some of the stats to visit Durango this first year. And and by the way, year one now we're in, or, or almost exactly yeah. a year. January twenty fifth. Is that when it launched? Yeah. Wow, gosh, time flies. <laughs> um, but the numbers and the usage since then, I think, is wild. And and. For me, from a marketing perspective, paints a picture that we're actually adding value. Yes. Like that people are, are, you know, seeing it as a valuable resource. Tell me a little bit about the traffic and the, the sessions and the, the yeah. data from it already. Yeah, yeah. So um, people have to understand I have no experience in this. And so I'm learning all this, which is really cool. But um, Continuing to learn new things. Continuing to learn new things. There's actually, there's actually studies that show as you age it's really important to learn new things. So yep. in addition to this, I picked up my guitar and I'm starting to learn guitar again. And uh, anyway, uh, so statistics. So after, at the end of December, and we started tracking Google Analytics uh, Mar in March 1st. So from March 1st until December 31st, so what is that? Nine, nine months. months. Yeah. Um, we've had 30,000 site visits and over 83,000 events. It's and crazy. An event is if somebody comes to the website and they go to another menu item on your website, that's called an event. So it's almost three to one. So, you know, you want to drive traffic in other 
directions once they get there, right? Whether it's restaurants or, you know, bike shops or whatever. So about three to one, 30,000 site visits and over 83,000 events. And each person is spending almost two minutes on the site, which doesn't seem like a long time. That's a long time. Yes. So, you know, we're looking at all those things and, um, and then our, our newsletter goes out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and plus just subscribers. And that's, um, which is, this is insane, but that has a 78% open rate. Unreal. Unbelievable. It's cause you're adding value. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I write it all. So, you know, I hope it's adding value, but real value. I, I mean, 78%. And, and so, you know, when we first started, they were like, okay, well, what's your volume? We're like, oh, we don't really have any. <laughs> well, what's your market? Well, we don't really know that yet. So now that we have that data, because the cool thing about this is it's completely fluid, right? So if you do print media, you can't change it. That's it, right? You're done. And it's one and done. For us, what's really cool is is somebody has a listing on the site. They can change it whenever they want. Yeah. They can put new pictures. They can put promotions. They can do whatever they want on that site as long as it meets a certain, our certain standard. But that's true flexibility. So some, a lot of businesses have seasonality. So they might, change their hours during the summer or the winter, or they might run a special now and then they can do all of that on the website. And it's like free extra marketing without having to pay for print media. And I would venture to say, I don't know this. I would venture to say though, that a lot of print media probably hasn't hit 30,000 in nine months. Oh yeah. I don't know that. That's completely conjecture on my part well and uh you know print's hard to measure too not that it not to get into a print digital thing but you know uh printing and distributing distributing and then actual readership are such different things right you know luckily in the digital world we have the luxury of like those are real visits right you know we there there's no there's no speculation involved right so which is and that's one of the things i love the most about digital marketing is that it's all all the trackability and reporting and things like yeah. that. And that's why I keep saying what, what all of that tells me is that you're adding real value, like actually adding value. Well, I mean, if you're a mountain biker, for example, and you're like, like we were out on the trail one day and we ran into this guy and he's biking. He's like, I, I have no idea where the heck I'm at. We're like, Hey, pedal Durango. <laughs> and so he pulls it up on his phone and, and he's like, I see him out in the community later. And he's like, Thanks. Because I was able to figure my way out of where I was based on your maps. So cool. Way cool. I mean, I was like, this was exactly the reason that we did this. And, you know, it has to be funded. So we funded through advertising and very reasonable advertising. So there was, can I name names? Sure. So uh, Tim Walsworth, who is uh, Business Improvement District for yep. downtown. Uh, I was talking to him and we met with him and he's like, yeah, I think I want to try a banner ad for you guys for um, beer fest or whatever. I don't, I don't drink brew fest. And so we're like, okay. So we charged him not very much money. I'll just tell you it was 90 bucks. And in 45 days he had 2,300 hits. No way. Yeah. I mean, that's for 90 bucks. 
Are you kidding me? Yeah. That's super cheap. So, and we, we haven't adjusted that, you know, cause it's a service to the community and, you know, really it's based on sort of gross volume, right? So if you get this community to do it and this community to do it and this community to do it, then all of a sudden you have a pretty viable business model. Is that the plan? Yeah. Scale and grow. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, if we can make it work, like we're not experts in say steamboat. So we know, oh, pe- yeah, we know it. people in steamboat. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, you sort of think, how can we make this? What's the best model for this? Do we make them, do we just pay them to write content for us? Do we go partner? Certainly we want to go up there and ride. Well, you have to. Yeah. (laughs) So that's a component of it. Or the other thing is it is, do we franchise it? Let them run theirs and then they pay us. I'm not really, I don't know about that one because then you sort of lose control. Uh, I'm, sort of a control guy. So I don't know, but you know, then we need to start thinking of those things. And then the other thing is that that as far as expanding content, we've just entered into an agreement with mercy sports medicine and we're going to start doing videos. Awesome. So our first video with them is next week. Um, and we're going to start doing fitness training and strengthening and, and we can put that on the site and on YouTube. And, you know, there's another resource for people to use to come to Pedal Durango. So cool. <laughs> so fun. I, it's, uh, I don't sleep much. At yeah. I was going to say, my brain is like, eh. we, uh, we need to do these more often because I can't wait to see. It's just, it's, it's fun to see all that you've accomplished, all that you're still accomplishing. And, and still, a, you know, an eye for the horizon and a, and a head, a head for the, the future. Yeah. It's refreshing. Oh, and so Rick, I want to thank you sure. for, you know, letting me pick your brain a little bit, letting me learn from you, yeah but also thank you for saying yes. And oh, thank thanks. you for building teams and thank you for creating communities and for adding value. You're one of those guys that when, if you're in the room, it's an indicator that I'm probably in the right room. Oh, you know, I don't if, know if, about that. So I, I just very sincerely, I'm glad oh, to know you and thanks. I appreciate you so much for sharing your story. This won't be the last cause there's about 15 other things I want to dive down in there. Oh, now sure. That, Anytime that we started, but I, uh, I just appreciate it so much and, and keep doing what you're doing because you're making an impact and you're, you're inspiring people and you're connecting people and you're adding value. And I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it. So well, thank thanks. you so much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all about making other people around you better, right? So if we all make ourselves better, then, you know, it's, that is a community. And, uh, I love that. You know, they're like, Hey Rick, uh, do you know anybody that can do this? I'm like, absolutely. I know this dude. And so, um, yeah, I like that. Yeah. That's, that's fun for me. It's what it's all about. It's what it's all about, making everybody better. Thank you so much, Rick. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Made me a little bit better today. Oh, thanks. Thanks.